So grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Okay, I'm going to start reading. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let me pray for Paddy. Father God, who loves the whole universe and every single person in it, not just the privileged, not just the underprivileged, but everyone. Please help Paddy as he tries to help us understand from your word what it means to live for you in light of the way that we care for people. Please help us to be ready to listen and not only ready to listen, to ready to, to be go sorry, to ready to be to be ready to act and go and do likewise for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. to uh, public meetings again. If you don't know me, my name's Paddy. I'm one of the EU staff here and uh, I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks unpacking this uh, topic of social justice. Uh, if I can uh, just uh, add a word of encouragement to Matt's one about Next Steps, which is the evening that the EU is running on Monday, a great opportunity for you if you've never really considered whether vocational ministry is something you could be doing or pursuing, uh, a great opportunity to spend some time thinking about that on Monday and talking particularly with others uh, in the staff team or uh, some of our guests who are coming in. Just a show of hands, anyone uh, heard of Tim Keller? Yeah, has anyone not heard of Tim Keller? Okay, so you guys are the smartest group out of all three weeks of public meetings. That's the smallest number of people, that's good. Um, <coughs> I just took that for granted. You guys are the, uh, the, you guys are the best dressed, you guys are the best looking, you guys are the... How many of you have read his book uh, called Generous Justice? Okay, well, unfortunately, that's where the comparison ends. <laughs> 
How many of you have the intention to read lots of really good books by Tim Keller and never get round to it? Okay, you guys did a seminar on time management and uh, self-discipline and uh, this is a book that I've been engaging with with a couple of others. So I think um, over these next three weeks, Keller says some really interesting things. Uh, I want to encourage you, uh, if this is a book that you've been meaning to read, then this may be the season to engage with it. In the midst of everything else that you're going on and thinking about, this may be the season where you go, actually, I do need to get back into my habit of reading Christian books. This may be the one you pick up. Or you might like to wait until we've done the three weeks of uh, social justice and then go, okay, well, I've got a lot of stuff to think about. Now I'm going to engage with some other people. I'm going to engage with Keller and a couple of others. Uh, this is quite a good entry-level read into the topic. Uh, having said that, though, I want to uh, just start at the beginning by saying I've been asked to speak over the next three weeks, which means if you've come today and you're expecting me to talk a lot about refugees and homelessness and feeding the poor, and you'll be a little disappointed this week, anyway. Uh, I've worked on the assumption I've got three weeks to try and unpack the topic. And I'm working on the assumption that because you're here this week, you're now committing to come for the next two weeks as well. So can I encourage you to come for all three weeks? Otherwise, actually, you'll miss a fair chunk of what I'm trying to say. The other thing is, uh, you might find some of the stuff that we even talk about today a little bit confronting and a little bit personally challenging. And you may go, yeah, I don't think I want to come back next week. Can I encourage you not to do that? Because when we're confronted with the Word of God, it's actually a good thing to be confronted by what it says rather than assuming that we know what it says, rather than assuming that we've worked it all out. So if that's your position, I'm just forwarding you to maybe some issues that come up for you on that today. So in terms of social justice, I think the first issue we want to try and... Uh, well, let me give you the overview of where we're going today. There's, uh, there's, you, you have my extensive outline on the pages in front of you. So what I thought I'd do is I'd make it even more extensive for you. I'm giving you four main points. I'm going to try and raise the problem of social justice. I'm going to try and deal with this question of why do we expect justice by looking at the character of God, then answer the question of why we don't get justice by exploring the nature of humanity and finally propose a solution. The next couple of weeks will then be sort of unpacking this sort of construct as to what it means for us personally, that's next week, and what it means for us socially, that's the third week. They're really the trajectory of where we're going. Okay? One of the things we need to do when we start with is trying to work out what do we mean when we talk about social justice. And as I reflected on this, uh, we uh, had to come up with some sort of definition for what we mean by social justice. Uh, clearly, I think if we sort of sample people, you go, well, those who uh, have been unfairly treated, those in our society who are less well off. So I picked a couple of examples. Google's a wonderful thing. There's just five examples from sort of roughly a contemporary period. So you see there, there's an image of homelessness. Uh, there's an image of uh, poverty. There's one of the land rights issue um, down in Australia. Uh, the middle one with regard to refugees and the one on the right, the yellow sign for use by whites only, the apartheid debate. All of these issues, I think we'd probably agree, are the issues of social justice. Now, I don't think these are necessarily the biggest five, although perhaps the issue of refugees at this point might be. Interestingly, though, Australia has actually a very low intake of refugees, if you've uh, done some work on this. Other countries have far larger intakes of refugees. I suspect our media these days tries to make out that we are overburdened by such a great wave of refugees, almost as if we're the only country in the world that this is happening to. Um, no, I don't think that's the case, actually. We'll look at that next week and the week after. But five sort of contemporary issues of social justice. Why do we pick these particular issues? Why do we think that these people need justice? By what standard are we making that comparison? Why do we say that this looks abnormal? Why do we say that this feels not right? Why do we just say this is just plain wrong? What standard are we using? 
And it may be because we've had some form of action done against us that intrinsically we just feel is wrong. It's just that's not right. To sort of scream out, that's not right. And in some ways, some of the ways in which these particular people groups or in these situations have come about, that resonates with our own personal experience. In that case, the measure of what is just is actually ultimately based on what has happened to us. Or perhaps we've been persuaded by the rules and sort of the regime of our current society or perhaps another society that you've lived in. And so you're comparing the current society or a society that you've lived in with what's going on around the world to say, actually, in Australia we have certain freedoms. In Australia we have certain rights. In Australia we have certain privileges, certain expectations. Clearly these things are not being offered to other people groups around the world or, dare I say, in our own backyard. Surely that then means that these people are being treated unjustly. What rule, what measure are we going to use? Uh, if you uh, follow Instagram, anyone follow Instagram? Uh, don't, don't properly, show of hands, don't be too ashamed. Ah, more hands, good. Uh, you've seen the rich kids of Instagram? Rich kids of Instagram, you've seen this? Yeah, everyone else is sitting there, what the heck is this talking about? Instagram, you share photos, rich kids sharing photos. You can imagine what the photos are like. Look at my car, it's probably like the most expensive car in the world. Look at my holiday. It's the places that we don't even dream about going, like they're beyond that. You know what I mean? Some of these rich kids of Instagram feel like they're hardly done by. Because they're not actually getting what other rich kids are getting. And at that point, I want to nicely take one of them aside and gently do this to them. <laughs> and that's just because we're recording it and I don't want to go on record articulating what I just suggested we should be doing. <laughs> in some respects, you, you just want to say to them, your perception of reality is completely stuffed up. Do you really realise what's going on in the world? See, sometimes our perspective is actually not quite right. And so sometimes that actually flavours what we think is just and what we think is not just. So for the rest of today, I want to try and start with a Christian understanding of what justice would be. And I want to start primarily by looking at the character of God. So as revealed to us, partly starting in the, well, primarily starting in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, the God of Israel had very clear expectations for justice. He had clear expectations for all sorts of things. But just for the next three weeks, we're just going to focus in on the idea of God's expectation for justice. And these were intimately tied to the way in which God expected society to be run. The expectation of the way in which God expected the nation of Israel to behave towards him and towards each other and then also towards the other nations flows primarily from God's character, who he is and what he expects of other people. Let me uh, see if I can demonstrate this by looking at a couple of passages. I'm going to put these up on the screen. Uh, there's about six or eight of them. You might like to flip and try and find them or you might like to write them down. I've sort of indicated the references in bold there. Let's have a look at some of the passages. I've sort of taken a bit of a selection of about a hundred or so in the Old Testament. So if you think I've been a little bit picky, in some senses I have to be selective because I wasn't going to have time to read them all out, but you can just go and find these yourself. Just go and do a search on Bible Gateway or something like that. Search for the word justice and just work your way through all the passages and see whether or not I'm, I'm appropriately indicating the trajectory of the passages and whether or not what I'm saying is actually what the Bible's saying. Well, here we go, Isaiah 61. For I, the Lord, love justice... I hate robbery and iniquity. 
In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make everlasting covenant with them. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. And again, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you from Psalm 89. What we start to see here is that God is not just hoping that justice would be done. Because if that's the case, then he may be a God who actually in his nature is not really just. He's just sort of putting up this facade. He may be a God who just sort of disappears and is never really engaged in the world, who's fickle and capricious. But he's really, really keen that justice is done on the earth. What I'm suggesting is that these passages indicate that God's expectation of what will happen on the earth flows directly from who he is. What is justice? Not an understanding of what it is. Start first with the character of God. Here's a couple more. Uh, Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. Psalm 99, 4. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. In the dialogue in the book of Job, in Job chapter 8, the question is asked, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? The answer is no. That's the assumed answer, which is why the question is being posed. The other thing to notice here is that there is a certain expectation that for those who follow after the character of God, God will, they will be protected. They will be looked after. They will be rewarded to some extent. But there is a distinction made between those who follow the character of God with regard to justice and those who choose not to. In this case, that one particular passage of the psalmist indicates a distinction between those who follow justice and the wicked. And they will ultimately be put out of the presence of God. This then is who God is. God is, in his character, just. Is he other things? Loving and generous and great? Yes, of of course, all those things. But if we want to understand what justice is and how we should act justly, I'm suggesting to you that the Bible tells us that we start with the character of God and the way in which that's demonstrated is, first and foremost, the people of Israel. So this is the character of God and this has some implications for the nation of Israel. Notice here in Deuteronomy 16, this is how God commanded that justice be established within the nation of Israel. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy 16, 18-20. If you remember in the first part of the book of Deuteronomy, what are the Israelites commanded to follow? Actually, they're commanded to follow a person, aren't they? That's Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall have have no other gods before him. The last verse of this particular section, verse 20, could just as easily, I think, be written, follow Yahweh and Yahweh alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Doing justice involves following God's good commands for the nation of Israel. And the laws that God gives are then an outworkings of his character of particular interest when we deal with the topic of justice is the direction or the trajectory that the laws head towards. So in this case, here from Zechariah. This is the expectation in Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. 
Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. In a number of passages connected to the idea of doing justice within the community of the nation of Israel, this little phrase comes up. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien or the poor. For a number of reasons, I think. Because there were people of that standing in the community. There would have been widows. There would have been poor people. And there would have been aliens who wouldn't by birth be Jews but had chosen to live among the Jewish community. The aliens. The trajectory of justice is not only to one another, mercy and compassion, but also to particular groups of people who, if you like, are not as well off as other people in the community. Uh, An interesting quote by way of summary is from an Old Testament scholar, uh, Brueggemann, who says this, with regard to the implications for Israel. He says, The intention of Mosaic justice is to redistribute social goods and social power. This justice recognises that social goods and social power are unequally and destructively distributed in Israel's world and that the well-being of the community requires that social goods and power to some extent be given up by those who have too much for the sake of those who have not enough. Sounds a little bit like socialism, doesn't it? We're going to come back in week three and see whether or not it is or it isn't. I think Brueggemann's on the money as you read through the passages with regard to justice and the rationale for why it's done in Israel. Let me show you why. Here's another interesting passage. The year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. Note the passage, have a read through it on the screen. Essentially, the year of Jubilee was that when God had brought the people out of slavery from Egypt, he established them as a nation in the Promised Land, he allocated to each of the tribes of Israel, except for the Levites, the clans into the families, various plots of land. So that's why if you read the back end, I think it's of two chronicles, it goes for about 15 chapters, you can read all about the land that they've been allocated. Some would say it's really boring. Some would say it's riveting. As a geographer, I'm torn between the two. Okay? Really what it's talking about is just talking about the way in which the land was distributed to people. That's where they started. Every 50 years, everyone went back to the original plot of land they had. And they started again. It's a little bit like, let's imagine you're playing Monopoly with a couple of your friends. Your friend is beating you fairly significantly. You're coming second, of course, and the other two friends that are there are about to get wiped off the board. But you're really, really pleased that in one of the footnotes of the Monopoly rules, you've said after two hours, you all start again. And so two hours appears and you go, fantastic. And so you say, guess what? It's the sort of the time of Jubilee, so we're all going to start again. There's actually no winner. Now, some of you will find that immensely frustrating particularly if you're the person who's winning. But imagine you're the person who was losing really, really badly. What a great relief to know that you get to have another crack at it. But interestingly, you don't start again with your little horseshoe or your car or whatever it is they're using nowadays in Monopoly on the go square. You actually start by all getting a reasonably even distribution of all the cars, all the property, as well as some houses and hotels. The Year of Jubilee was a mechanism by which for those who had been for those who had acquired much, actually, some was given back again. During that 50 years, you may, as a family or an individual, have had to sell yourself into slavery to pay for your debts because of bad decisions you'd made, because you're unable to provide for your family. You may have had to give away some of your land. But the underlying expectation of it was that the land was actually not yours to own. 
It was God's land that you were essentially and your family just looking after for generations and generations. And so here you get, and this is why I think Brueggemann's on the money, that those who had more, actually, there was a redistribution of what was going on. And this was written into the law of Israel because it's consistent with the character of God and his expectation of justice. Now, this idea of uh, the establishment of justice from God's character also has some implications for the nations. Uh, Now, we'll skip that. Um, So, then the passage from Deuteronomy 4 and Isaiah 51. Let's go to the Isaiah 51 particularly. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. The expectation here is that the nations were meant to recognise that Israel had something that they did not. And that's what the Deuteronomy passage is talking about as you read it. They were meant to realise that they did not have the God of Israel looking after them and protecting them. And I think they were also meant to realise that when it was working, the nation of Israel had something in the way it was set up with regard to its laws and its expectation of justice that was not apparent in the other nations. And so here's the promise of Isaiah 51. That expectation of the way in which society should be, coming from the character of God, will actually go out to all the nations. That expectation will go to all the nations. The nations don't have it, but one day they will. So why then don't we get justice? Why is it that we don't get justice? Why is it that our society is not just? Because I would have thought that sometimes the argument runs, well, society is doing better now. Humanity has been advancing for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Surely technology has solved all of our problems. Arguably, are we not a more just society now than we were 100 years ago? You realise that uh, this year is the 10th year anniversary of the camper, Children Overboard incident. And we've managed in the last 10 years to pretty much solve the refugee problem in Australia, haven't we? We've got it all sorted out through a number of different governments of different political persuasions, we've really managed to crack it. The reality is, we haven't fixed it. It feels like we're back at square one. I think there's great deficiencies in the argument that says humanity can actually solve all its problems when it comes to justice. Now, why is that the case? Let me propose a solution. Well, let me propose an answer to the question. I think it's here in Romans 3. The answer is human sinfulness. We don't like hearing it, but I think that's why, no, that's the biblical reality. The reason why we do not act justly towards one another and the reason why society does not act justly is because we have not taken on the character of God. He is justice. He desires that for humanity as his creation. And yet we've chosen to say to God, no thanks God, we can do it our own way. Should we then not be surprised that we actually can't live justly? So one of the outworkings that we see particularly in this passage is that disobedience towards God is prevalent. We see it in our own relationships because we don't always get on with people and we see it in our society. Actually, I think you'd have to say, broadly speaking, society is not just. I'm happy to argue that point in the next couple of weeks. However, at the same time, and this is where I want to lead next week, I think actually part of being human The fact that we are made in the image of God means that actually justice is possible for humanity. And so that's why I think you do see 
in some Christians and in some non-Christians, justice being done. However, I want to argue that it's not complete. It's not there all the time. But I want to dismiss the idea that you can only do justice if you're a Christian. And I think that comes back to the point that we're all, whether we're Christians or not Christians, created in the image of God. And the disobedience that comes from rebelling against God means that we just don't do things as we should. So we're going to explore that next week when it looks at what do we mean, what do we mean to do justice personally. And then that flows into some implications for the third week. I think we see this also in the extent to which Christian influence can be exerted in society. I suspect if someone wants to go and do it, I think you'd be able to show a reasonable correlation between the extent of Christian influence in a society and the extent to which that society acts justly. Maybe something to ponder. But generally, I think what it shows is that we need another solution. We actually can't achieve justice ourselves in our society and the solution is in the person of Jesus. And here we see Jesus is the one who actually brings justice. If you're at public meetings earlier on in the year, we looked at this passage, Luke 4. Uh, This is what Jesus says, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were upon him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. For the Jew, the claim that Jesus was making was outrageous. That these particular promises of Yahweh, the one who had given them the Old Testament way of living justly and yet the nation of Israel had demonstrated that they were unable to do it, the one who is going to come and fulfil these promises is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who will not only preach to the poor, he is the one who has been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, the releasing of the oppressed, and notice here, the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favour, and friends, this is the year of Jubilee. The very thing that was expected back in the Old Testament comes now in the person of Jesus. But Jesus, in fulfilling these words, if you like, takes it to the next level. That the year of Jubilee is the opportunity now for all people, not just the Jews, but the nations as well, to be included in God's great promises. So, think back to the Romans passage. Both the Jew and the Gentile fall short of the glory of God. But at the same time, Jesus is the one who comes, well, Jesus is the one who comes to bear the justice of God. Because the just position that we stand in under God is if we continue to disobey against him we deserve his punishment and judgment but Jesus takes the judgment of God and in doing so the justice of God has been dealt with this is what this man Jesus does for us it's the fulfilment of Isaiah 61 and it's a promise of great restoration restoration from personal sin and disobedience against God And I take it also restoration of the possibility of a society which continues to live in rebellion against God. That's the hope that's expected by declaring the year of the Lord's favour. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We see it in the way in which he restores individuals. We see it in that he restores them physically in healing. But we see it also that by also healing them, he's restoring them back into community. 
Uh, the leper in Mark 5, who Jesus heals, Jesus then says, go to the Pharisees and perform the ritual of purification. Why does he say that? Is it maybe that Jesus' miracle wasn't quite enough? And he was only given the capacity to be healed? And then when he performs the ritual, he is suddenly healed? No, friends, I think the ritual of purification is the declaration that the man has now been healed, that he is no longer unclean and excluded from the people and excluded from worshipping God. He has now been healed and is therefore declared to be clean. See, Jesus restores the man's skin physically. An amazing miracle. But at the same time, he restores him relationally as well, back into community. The thing that the laws of Israel were designed to do. So then Jesus' death creates the possibility of a restored humanity, which as Christians we now participate in, both in the here and now, and we look forward to it into the future. In Jesus, a new community of believers is established, and the expectations, I take it, of justice that were given to the nation of Israel are now expected of God's people, which now includes the nation. <coughs> Friends, you and I, the expectation of God's nature in doing justice and in living justly is expected of His people. In the Old Testament and the people of Israel and now in His people, those who are Christians. They're people who have experienced grace. I want to ask the question, what could that look like? Well, turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan. In case you were wondering whether or not we were going to get there, we did. And with an extra minute compared to yesterday, so we're doing well. <coughs> Let me make a couple of comments. I'm still going to finish at 5-2, by the way. Let me make a couple of comments about Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. We've had the story read to us. Hopefully it's there in front of you. I'm not going to read it again. Once again, a shocking story to the Jew. The traveller on his way is beset by robbers. And who is the one who goes and helps? Well, it's the Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were traditionally enemies of the Jews. They were hated. They were half-castes. This is the one who goes out of his way to help the traveller who is lying half-dead by the side of the road. He is unlike the priest. He is unlike the Levite, both of whom head to the other side of the road because they knew that any contact with possibly a dead body would make them ritually and ceremonially unclean. Either that, or they just really didn't have any pity for the man, perhaps. Notice the comparison? When the Samaritan sees the traveller who has been waylaid by robbers, he has pity on him. And notice what he does. He doesn't go over to the man and drop him a couple of coins and walk on his way, assuming that that couple of coins will help the distressed traveller on his way. Nor does he go over to the man and bend down to him and say, do you need some help? Because clearly the man needs some help. He's half dead. Notice what the man does. He goes over, he immediately picks him up, he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to the nearest hospital. And he drops him off and he says, here, you guys can look after him. Is that what your version says? It's not what my version says either. What does your version say? Have a read of it again. He picks up the traveller, he takes him to an inn and the Samaritan cares for him. Tends his wounds himself. Bandages him up. And then knowing, presumably, that the Samaritan had other commitments, says to the innkeeper, whatever it takes to get this man back up to normal life, do it and I will reimburse you for it. Does that make you feel 
bit uncomfortable. Because I tell you what, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Who is the neighbour to the man? The neighbour is the Samaritan. The Samaritan is the one who goes far, what we might say, above and beyond what he was required to do. I don't think he goes above and beyond. I think he does what he knows is the right thing to do. And at great personal cost. In this case, the action of the Good Samaritan is an active, restorative help. It's a genuine expression of self-sacrifice and can be argued that it's an attempt to bring justice to that particular situation. I think the assumption behind the story is that the traveller was not intending to be waylaid by robbers. The traveller had not put themselves into that particular situation of injustice. And so the Samaritan goes at great personal cost. In this case, Jesus tells the story, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, to indicate that such is the extent that God goes to for us. That he gives up his own son. That we might be restored back into relationship and in many respects back into true humanity by being in relationship with him through the death of his son. But at the same time, the story also, I think, tells us how we are to behave to those in certain situations. This is what I want you to do a little bit of homework for me for the next couple of weeks, particularly between now and the next week. I want you to take 15 minutes, sometime between now and next week, go and sit in the sun, go and have a cup of tea, just go and spend 15 minutes and reflect on these two questions. Firstly, have you been transformed? Have you been transformed by the love of God in sending Jesus. Have you been transformed? Because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the love of God transforms us in the death of the Lord Jesus. And the second question I want you to ponder is, how are you going, or how am I going, at being just in the light of what we've heard today? How am I going in the light of being just? Because I think, and this is what I want to argue for the next couple of weeks, that Jesus' expectation in clearly demonstrating the nature of God in his character in being just, is that justice is not plainly received, but it is also done. It is not just a thing that is received, it is also a thing that is meant to be done. So how are you going, being just? Let me pray. Father God, in your kindness, we want to give you thanks for the death of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for restoring us in his death and resurrection back into right right relationship with you. Father, we ask, please, that you would help us to live rightly in this world. Father, we recognise we need your help in this regard and we ask for it now. Father, as we consider our life, please help us not to shy away from hard truths. Father, we ask, please, that you would soften our hard hearts and make us more and more day by day like the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.